in sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Good morning, Los Angeles, and welcome to another edition of the Weekend Warrior Show. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Clapper. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at Cedar sinai for 31 years. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of time. And soon to be, in February, 10 years on the radio. Loving it. Had a busy day in the operating room yesterday. Can't operate electively at Cedars right now because of COVID, and hopefully this is tapering off. Um, but I was able to work in the surgery center doing all these anterior cruciate ligament tears in skiers and martial arts. Also did a rotator cuff yesterday in the surgery center. Patients keep coming. I so much enjoy seeing you guys during the week. The magic word that brings a big smile to my face is when you say, oh, Dr. Pepper, I've been listening to you for years, but get ready for the next thing I'm going to say to you, which is, really? What's your favorite story? <laughs> I cannot wait for today's show. I am so excited. 815 Calling In is a true baseball expert, and whether you like baseball or not, you have to respect the passion that someone has for what it is that they do for a living. For many, many years, Stan Conti, my guest at 815, was the athletic trainer for the beloved Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team. He started working in San Francisco for the Giants and then took over working for the Dodgers. Steve, I still hear music in the background. Maybe we can get rid of that. Can you get rid of that music in my ear, maybe? Um, the reason I'm calling Stan Conti to be my guest today is because he is an expert in injury to the elbow, to the shoulder in baseball pitchers. And last week, we saw the passing of one of the most beloved baseball pitchers ever because he lived to do it longer than anybody else. His name was Phil Necro. He was pitching in the major leagues until he was 48 years old. Who even knows how long Satchel Paige was pitching in his lifetime? And that's a whole nother story. But for the Atlanta Braves, they were blessed to have this pitcher, Phil Necro, forever. He had a no-hitter. He had multiple years where he won more than 20 games. And the reason is because he threw a pitch that very few people can throw. And it's called a knuckleball. Because literally, to throw this baseball, you have to stick two of your fingernails into the baseball. Now, why would you do that? Because what Phil Necro learned from his father as a child is that if you can master throwing this ball where you contort acrobatically your fingers like a claw 
into the baseball, and you don't have to throw it 100 miles an hour, which is what wears out your elbow and your shoulder as a baseball pitcher. But if you can master this pitch, you can pitch forever, it seems. But Phil Necro practically did. But here's what I love about this pitch, the knuckleball. You throw it only 70 miles an hour, so every pitcher thinks they can smack it for a home run. But once that pitch leaves your hand, the wind and the spin influences the ball's path in a way that even the pitcher has no idea what it's going to do. The catcher has no idea what path this ball is going to take. And especially the hitter has no idea where this ball is going. How could you possibly control the chaos, especially when you start off slow and speed up into these crazy moves? In a minute, you're going to hear sound bites of Phil Necro and the hitters and the catchers talking about this chaos that he could throw by digging his fingernails into the baseball and striking everybody out. And it made me think all week, you know how much I love the world of art, the world of sports, and the world of surgery. Where do you see the story of controlling chaos, making sense out of some, something that's designed not to make sense? And for me, it's in this song that many people consider the greatest rock and roll song ever written. Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. It was written first by Jimmy Page with the music. There were no lyrics. And Jimmy Page was a studio musician, guitar player, who learned concert playing. He, you'll hear in the soundbite, he wanted us to write a song, a rock and roll song, as a tribute to Bach, the classical composer but he also wanted typical Led Zeppelin to violate all the rules. Start the song off slow, speed it up, and be influenced, in the case of the knuckleball, influenced by the spin and the wind. He wanted the song to now be influenced by John Paul Jones, his bandmate, saying, instead of an electric piano, Jimmy Page, let's use a recorder. And Robert Plant saying, I'll write the lyrics to this music, but by the way, they won't make any sense. I'm going to speed up and slow down just like the pace that you built into this song. It's a phenomenal song because it essentially, to me, is a knuckleball. Only you're going to hear a musician talk about the flight of his song just like Phil Negro talking about the flight of that pitch that he threw for his whole career. The knuckleball, that's going to be today's topic. And in a minute, we'll start with the sound bites. Clap revision. As I love the world of surgery, and we're going to talk about knuckleball, almost seeing the invisible. Jared Goff and Anthony Davis. 
Anthony Davis jammed his toe earlier in the week, and he played beautifully last night, which was great. They beat the hell out of the Pelicans and Lonzo Ball. I had to love it. But he jammed his toe, had an x-ray, which was negative. Negative for fracture, yes. But more importantly, what was it negative for? For a dislocation or for a ligament injury. And you may say to me, you can't see a ligament on an x-ray. But yes, you can. Because you can, you can see the effect of a torn ligament on an x-ray when the bones don't line up. And that's what we saw in Jared Goff's thumb. We knew his ligament was damaged in addition to the fracture because the x-ray tells us the alignment. So here's the clapper vision. I'll give you a hint. It involve, involves an artist painting wind. Clapper. Wind is invisible. How does a painter show you wind? That'll be the clapper vision a little bit later when I open the clinic. But let's get right into today's sound bites. Let's go to the story of Phil Negro and his knuckleball pitch that he throws but has no idea where it's going to end up. Number one. No one ever told me that I can't throw a knuckleball when I was 10 or 11 years old. So I just after year after year playing catch with my dad in the backyard and it was the pitch that I could get guys out when we choosed up sides and it was the pitch that got me on the varsity team when I was a freshman that was the pitch that I could throw when I was growing up and no one said that you couldn't do it now listen carefully and I'll tell you he's showing you how he throws it he takes his thumb and his ring finger to cradle the ball he puts his pinky finger under the ball but most importantly, he takes his index and his long finger, folds them up like putting them in a suitcase, and has those two fingers, his index and his long finger, their na the nails dig into the baseball. It's a pitch like no other pitch. Listen to him describe it, number two. So, how do you throw the knuckleball? I lay that ball right there. Uh, I'll take this thumb and this finger here and wrap the ball balance around the ball as much as i can in here it's it's not ones up here or down there it pretty much balance across i'll take this finger and just kind of wherever it feels good laying it there i'll lay it there i'll take these two fingers drop them over the ball and bring these two fingers back as far as i can and dig the fingernails into the ball now let's listen to the catcher ron hassey tell you I have no idea where this ball is going to end up. He throws it at the batter, and I'm supposed to catch the damn thing. Number three. Sympathize with these guys at all? Not a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I used to when I first got into organized baseball. I kept saying, boy, I can't throw this because that guy's going to miss it. You can't get any type of rhythm to where maybe it's breaking away every time because right, just when you start thinking about that, it'll end up breaking the opposite way, or it doesn't break and it goes up. It's just uh, every time you go out there, something different. I can't say I'm going to make this knuckleball pop in the outside corner, down the inside corner. Because uh, it, it's just that pitch that never does the same thing twice. So, Phil Negro, why does it do that? Number four. I'll tell you, you know, I've been asked that question lots of times. You know, why does a knuckleball do what it does and what makes it do? And I have no idea. <laughs> it is a type of pitch that comes out of the fingers without any spin to it. The good knuckleball is the ball that just kind of comes in like this all the way in the batter and just does a few things on the way in. I really started throwing a knuckleball when I was in grade school. 
because his dad in the backyard played catch with him. So for all you fathers listening, all you weekend warriors, keep doing what you're doing because you may be training a future Hall of Famer like Phil Negro. Number five. My father was a sandlot pitcher that threw a knuckleball. He threw me a knuckleball, and I, I missed it, or I, he laughed at it or something, and I said, what was that? And he showed me and said, son, that's a knuckleball. Here's how you hold it. I place it back in here very comfortably. I wrap these two fingers, my thumb around the ball, and these two fingers actually just come up and dig when I throw it. The pitcher doesn't know where it's going, nor does the catcher know where it's going. Bruce Benedict is having a lot of trouble with Necro's knuckleball right now. So if you can't catch it, you must realize it must be tough to hit. It's unhealthy. You swing and you could miss that ball by five or six inches. And I've seen guys do that. Now let's listen to Bob Boone, a fantastic hitter, talking about I wish I had a tennis racket because this ball was flying all over the place. Number six. He threw me a corkscrew knuckleball one day that went like this that I still wake up in the middle of the night seeing. I went oh for the next two years against him. There was times when I needed a tennis racket to hit him. A batter would swing and look at me and laugh. <laughs> I turned my back and just kind of put my glove over my face. He was phenomenal. And number seven. For a career defined by deception, it's most fitting that Phil Necro was born on April Fool's Day, 1939. He enjoyed early success at Ohio's Bridgeport High School made the varsity team as a freshman throwing knuckleballs. That was it. I lost one game in high school. Bill Mazeroski, the home run off of me in high school. Beginning his major league career as an average reliever with the Braves in 1964, Negro's improvement coincided with some sage advice from his witty 1967 battery mate. Bob Euchre, who's hysterical, but he pretty much told him, listen, son, that pitch is unhittable. Don't worry about me catching. I'll figure it out. But throw that pitch, and you'll have a career in the major leagues. Number eight. The guy that really turned my career around as far as a catcher was Bob Uecker. Uke said, if you throw more knuckleballs than you have been, you're going to win the big leagues. Because I was getting taken out of games with runners on third base and stealing and pass balls. So don't worry about that. I'll catch it. If I don't, uh, that's my problem. That year that he caught me, I led the league in the runner on average. He led the league in pass balls at the same time. And number nine. 1967 began a run of 14 consecutive years in which Necro would have double-digit victories, including three 20 or more win seasons. The best pitcher I ever hit off was Tom Seaver. The toughest pitcher for me ever in 19 years to hit off was Phil Necro. Nico was the best pitcher I ever saw. It might be coming up 70 miles an hour, but it's dancing around there, and it's really is probably the toughest pitch to hit. Consistently tough to hit, a fact brought home by Nico's career strikeout total of 3,342, seventh best all time upon his retirement. No surprise for a knuckleball pitcher that strikeout number 3,000 was a passed ball. I think because he was used to dealing with chaos, it made him a really good fielder. But most importantly, listen to this soundbite where they talk about longevity. It is so little stress on your elbow and your shoulder that you can pitch forever. And Stan Conti will get into it with us at 8.15 uh, next. 
Phil was an accomplished fielder, earning five gold gloves while pitching for four organizations over 24 seasons. Knuckleball, great play by Negro. That's how you get to be 48 and still pitch in the big leagues. Nuxie holds the all-time record for most wins as a 40-year-old with 121, while his 245 career complete games also speak to his amazing durability. And for me, I just love hearing this guy's voice. It's Phil Rizzuto. Because for a couple of years, he played for the Yankees, Phil Negro. And listen when he has that trademark, holy cow. I just love it. The great Phil Rizzuto. Next. Hi, there's Phil Negro gunning for number 300. Jeff Torborg told me he was a bullpen catcher with the Yankees. He says, you know, you've got good enough stuff to win a game in the big leagues without the knuckleball. Of course, I never took him serious because I won 299 with the knuckleball. And Leach. Takes a strike. And he was throwing these ethos pitches and this, and he had them on. And they're all waiting for the knuckleball to come, and they never did. Bouncer back to Negro. And that's one. Next. I continued to do that until Jeff Burroughs came up. I was pitching a shutout, and all of a sudden it hit me. My father taught that knuckleball to me in the backyard in Ohio. I can't think of a better way to win my 300th game than by striking Burroughs out if I can't win a knuckleball. This is really an exciting moment. The brothers hugging, and that is really an emotional moment. Now I want you all to pay attention, because coming up next, you're going to hear the knuckleball. This free-spirited, I don't know where it's going. I'm going to violate all the rules. It's going to soar, speed up, slow down. I'm not throwing it fast. It's not a rock and roll song like Layla, which starts off powerful. No, I'm going to write it slow. But when you hear Jimmy Page talk about Stairway to Heaven, I want you to think about if the baseball that Phil Negro could talk, this is what it would sound like. Coming up next on the Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. It's good to be king, right, King James? Absolutely. And good to be courtly friends on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. I love it. Be treated like medical royalty with Clappervision. Clappervision. Feast like a monarch on Doc's delectable finds. There we go. And that far rockaway jester humor. <laughs> Search Weekend Warrior and click on Doc's regal picture. Cool. <laughs> Sound the trumpets. No cortisone, alchemy, or leeches here. Everything's good. Bow, curtsy, like, or follow the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. That makes me happy. Cheers. What's going on? It's Max. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday morning than with my friend Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Magandan Umaga. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Umi ihi bang paciente mo. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. We're going to get into this right now. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. So excited to make us think if a baseball could talk as it's leaving Phil Necro's hand. There's no real spin, but there is a spin. Will the wind in the stadium influence it? 
and he's not throwing it fast. He has no idea where this ball's going to go. The catcher has no idea where it's going to go. And the hitter has no idea where it's going to go. What an incredible joy it must be to work in the unknown. And yet you can control it. I just love it. The number, by the way, is 877-710-ESPN. I want to get into the clinic. I want to take you into surgery this week as well. And I also want you to know that God bless Cedar sinai and I'm so proud to work there for 31 years. Here I am, an orthopedic surgeon, but I'm going to be deployed as a doctor given vaccine shots. I cannot wait. I get my second shot this week, and then I'm going to be giving shots to the nurses, to the employees, and I hope soon to you, the weekend warriors as well. Even though I'm operating on people's hips and knees and shoulders, let the nurses be there to take care of the patients. Let someone like me give the shots. I can do that. We're all in this together, Weekend Warriors. And thanks so much for telling your friends and your family about the show. Let's listen to Jimmy Page talk about this incredibly iconic song he wrote in 1970 as part of Led Zeppelin. Number one. I've wanted to try to put something together. Number two. Which started with uh, a, quite a fragile, exposed acoustic guitar playing in sort of style of uh, a poor man's bourree by Bach. That sort of aspect. As far as the instrumentation goes, there are going to be a, 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 recorders to the early part, which gives it a sort of slightly medieval feel. It's a slow start. It's a rock and roll song with such a slow, it's the knuckleball. It's 70 miles an hour. It's 30 miles an hour less than what a fastball is. But that's just the beginning of the pitch. Now it's going to be influenced as it's leaving the pitcher's hand by all kinds of features. The threads on the baseball itself, how it deals with the wind. It's going to be influenced in its path. Well, guess what? John Paul Jones, listening to Jimmy Page's song, says, I don't want an electric piano. Jimmy Page, you should use the recorder. And he listens to him. Number three. There's a lady who shows all the glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. That was an idea of John Paul Jones is to put the recorders on, um, and he played the recorders. When I actually had the idea for stairway, I wasn't that wasn't necessary. I wasn't thinking recorders. I was thinking more the texture of actually the electric piano. When the knuckleball is in its path from the mound to the batter, Jimmy Page is talking about layers unfolding 
the path of this baseball goes up, down, sideways, all different directions, just like Stairway to Heaven. Next. The idea of Stairway was to have uh, a, a piece of music, a composition, whereby it would just keep unfolding into more, uh, more layers and more moods and actually the whole intensity of the, or subtlety and the intensity the, 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 of the overlay of the composition would actually uh, accelerate as it went through on every level, every emotional level, every musical level and so it just keeps opening up as, it's, as, it, as it continues through its sort of passage. opening up as it continues through its passage. That's exactly what this pitch is doing, as it literally, the ball is floating and quickly moving to the left or to the right. Here's the other influence of that baseball floating in the air, the wind, the spin. Robert Plant, there's no lyrics to the song. Jimmy Page plays this slow start, speeding up song to Robert Plant. This is 1970. Robert Plant sits down in a chair in front of Jimmy Page and flying out of his head, the lyrics immediately come to him for this complicated, tricky song. Number five. Robert was magnificent with his input of lyrics to the music of Led Zeppelin anyway. This was during the period that we were at Headley Grange that uh, the, the, the thing was put together. It was slightly complicated to be doing this whole thing without a vocal because at the time there weren't any lyrics and this, is the, this was the backbone of what the song was, going, was intended to be and the, the whole of the running order from the beginning to the end was sort of mapped out. It was tricky, it was a tricky thing to do because there, there's a lot of music and changes in it music and changes in it. It's floating in space. But to Robert Plant, it was easy. He could see it like a marble sculptor. He could see the figure trapped in a block of stone and literally sat down and wrote 90% of the words in a single moment. Number six. I remember during that period, Robert was, he was sort of sitting down leaning against the wall and he was just sort of writing. I, I, I won't never forget that image of him doing that. We do a run through of it from beginning to end with the uh, guitar opening as we all know. And then Robert comes up and starts to, he starts to pitch in and sing. And I tell you, he had to, it must have been 90% of the lyrics were, were already done. Now you're gonna hear Jimmy Page say, the song continues to open up. This is the path of the knuckleball changing positions in its path. God bless the catcher and the, and the batter. This thing is moving in a way they have no idea where it's gonna go. That's what Jimmy Page is designing here, is a knuckleball song. Number seven. So everything is starting to open up on this map, on this journey through. 
And all of this stuff was planned, you know, it wasn't just an accident or everyone chipping in. It was just, it, it, it really was a, a sort of design. It was his design to allow, to be influenced by John Paul Jones, let's use a recorder, by Robert Plant, I'm gonna write lyrics, Stairway to Heaven, that no one has any idea what this means. It just sounds great, but it makes the song, obviously. Now here, this next soundbite is fascinating. How come no one else pitches, throws the knuckleball? Because it violates all the rules of baseball, where you need to control and pick your spot as a pitcher to strike out the batter. You need to control the ball, whether it's a fastball, a slider, a curveball. Believe me, Oral Hershiser, Clayton Kershaw, these guys are the best ever, like Sandy Koufax, because they could pick a spot and put the ball there. Phil Negro had no clue where this ball was going to go. He's violating the rule of being a baseball pitcher. But Jimmy Page does the same thing. He's a studio musician and he's taught don't speed up in the middle at the end of the song. He violates the rule. And that's why this song is so different and so special. Number eight. One of the cardinal rules when I was a studio musician was that you didn't speed up. And I was keen to do something which had an acceleration to it, not only from the musical point of view, but from the lyricist, so that the whole thing would start to gain a momentum as it went through. So it wasn't just a monotone piece. And by that, I actually mean that it would, that, that it would subtly speed up. So you're breaking the number one cardinal rule. Coming up next, this next soundbite. Listen to when Jimmy Page uses the term sore. He's talking about a song, for God's sake. Songs don't soar, but yes, they do. When you realize he's writing a path, he's writing the path of a free-spirited baseball that's gonna be influenced by the wind. That's where the sawing comes from. It's just a beautiful analogy to me. I just can't, I just couldn't wait to do this show today because of marrying a baseball pitcher like Phil Necro with a songwriter, some of the greatest rock and roll songs of all time, Jimmy Page. But in many ways, they're the same guy. Number nine. The concept of the solo was to have something like a sort of fanfare, so it's a definite transition. So it comes in with a, with a fanfare to introduce this solo, and the solo is just going to soar right through. And I love when he finally says, says in this sound, last soundbite, 
that the passion has unfolded. The knuckleball arrives in the catcher's mitt, if they're lucky. But the passion to take the path with all those different influences, the pitch has finally ended, usually with the batter striking out. It's Jimmy Page on the pitcher mound. Number 10. And by that point, it's really, it's, it's really motoring. It's not racing, but it's just the passion of it has just, has just unfolded on every respect of, of the, 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 the lyrical aspect of it. Robert was inspired. Ah, uh, so much fun. I want to take you into the operating room. The clinic's open. The number is 877-710-ESPN. I took care of a young boy this week, 20 years old. He's a man who had another surgeon put stitches in his meniscus. He did a meniscus repair because he was so young. But the mistake that the surgeon had made was that you can't put stitches in the meniscus if the tear is in the wrong spot. What does that mean? the wrong spot. When do you trim the meniscus? When do you put stitches in it? When is it appropriate? You have to know the anatomy and understand the anatomy of an injury uniquely in the knee. I'll explain more with some clapper vision coming up next and I'll take your calls. The number is 877-710-ESPN but I also want to talk about another knuckleball pitcher in art and his name is Bob Dylan. We'll get into it. Coming up next on the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN. Get smart. Just what are you getting at? Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Like this. Medical advice from Cedar Sinai, head of orthopedic surgery. Are you kidding? With a far rockaway attitude and a little drizzle of mozzarella. Well, it's important to me. Search Weekend Warrior in the space bar. Like this. And click on Doc's picture. I see. Like, follow, and enjoy the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. This is Keyshawn in the morning. My man, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show starts your Saturday morning. Join the doc from 7 to 9 a.m. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. My mother is quelling in heaven right now when you say that. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I'm Belly Slater. Thank you. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Before I open the clinic, and the number is 877-710-ESPN. I want to take you into my office this week, seeing just a lovely kid, 20-year-old boy who is a volleyball player. Jumped up, came down, heard a pop, and now his knee couldn't straighten and bend. A classic description of a torn meniscus not being able to straighten or bend literally the knee was locked we call it a bucket handle tear and because he's so young appropriately as the orthopedic surgeon you better be thinking about not taking his meniscus out but repairing it but here's the problem as they say in real estate location 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 where exactly is the tear because depending on where the meniscus is torn you're going to succeed or not succeed. And this young kid actually 
had this done to both his knees, and both of them were still painful two years after his surgery. So he ends up in my office. I do an MRI, and what do you see? That he still has a tear in his meniscus. For two years after surgery, he's walking around with pain and swelling. He can straighten and bend his knee, but not without pain, and he ain't playing volleyball anymore. So my clapper vision for your meniscus, you've heard me say this before, is a slice of apple pie. The crust, thick area of the slice of apple pie is rich in blood supply. And if you have a tear that goes straight up from top to bottom where the crust is, those are the meniscus tears that do well when you put a stitch in when they're torn. But if the tear in the meniscus is closer to the tip of the slice of apple pie, the circulation, the blood supply is terrible. And if you try to put stitches and repair it, there's not enough circulation in the meniscus to heal it. It will fail. And that's what happened to this young boy. And what I did was I took him to surgery, took the stitches out arthroscopically, cleaned up the torn sandpaper tip of the slice of apple pie, but I left the crust. He still has a cushion. It's just not as fat as it used to be, but it's more than enough that you need to not get arthritis in the future. And more importantly, you no longer have pain. What a pleasure it was to see him back after the surgery I did, the first surgery I didn't do on him two years ago, I think it was done in uh, New England someplace. But to be able to take care of him now that he was home from school and give him a knee that doesn't hurt for the first time in two years. So not all meniscus tears are the same and should be treated the same. And I will tell you, if you're 40 or older and you come to me with a torn meniscus and you have full extension and full flexion, I might be the lone voice, the only opinion that you'll see, who's going to tell you, leave it alone. Go get the book that Linda Yui and I wrote called Heal Your Knees. You'll learn about the meniscus and the location for the tears. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be a contrarian. In my heart, I believe it. I want you not to have surgery, even though I'm a busy surgeon. Because if you're over 40, okay. Maybe it's not a perfect meniscus anymore. Father time has invaded your knee. But I'd rather you keep that not so great meniscus than let someone take it out. But this is why the history, the physical exam, the location of the tear, all of these things make a difference. And why shooting it with cortisone makes no sense at all to me. And actually, inhibits the ultimate healing that could take place. So I know all of you are out there, my disciples, but at least you now understand, no doctor, I don't want a cortisone shot. I don't want you sticking a needle in my knee. You fight back. That's hopefully after 10 years of being on the radio is my contribution for you to ask the right questions. Why? What's the side effect? What happens if I do this? Today's topic, and I cannot wait to talk to Stan Conti at 8.15, is all about Bill Negro and the knuckleball. 
the knuckleball in art, the knuckleball in sports, the knuckleball in surgery, this ability to use chaos to your advantage. Maybe you're a songwriter and you're using words, but the words themselves may not have meaning. You may just be using the word because you just like the way the word sounds. It rhymes with another word. You just heard me talk about Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin and Stairway to Heaven. And the path that the knuckleball pitch takes, that the pitcher, the, the catcher, and the hitter have no idea where it's going to go. It reminds me of this beautiful interview the late, great Ed Bradley from 60 Minutes had with Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan constantly being told, you're the spokesperson for our generation. And Bob Dylan would say, no, I'm not. I'm just a songwriter. I'm not writing sermons. I'm just writing songs. And Ed Bradley going, too bad. Everybody's living off of every word you write. And Bob Dylan says, well, they're reading too much into it. Listen to this phenomenal interview of Ed Bradley talking to Bob Dylan. It's as though he were sitting down with Phil Necro, the knuckleball pitcher, going, you meant to throw the ball to go to the left versus the right. And Phil Necro going, nope. I just dug my fingernails into that ball and threw it. And whatever path it took, it took. I just cared that the guy struck out. I just cared that the melody was there, that the words rhymed. Stop giving meaning to it. Let's go to Bob Dylan, number one. I know that, and I accept, you don't see yourself as the voice of that generation. But some of your songs did stop people cold. You know, and they saw them as anthems, and they saw them as protest songs. It had that meaning for them. It was important in their lives. It sparked a movement. I mean, you may not have seen it that way, but that's the way it was for them. How, how do you reconcile those two things? How do you reconcile that knuckleball that you threw and it landed and the guy swung at it? Instead of talking to Phil Necro right now, let's hear what Bob Dylan says to this same question. Number two. My stuff were, were, were songs, you know, they, they weren't sermons. They came out of the folk music realm. Uh, I wrote a song about the death of Medgar Evers. And uh, the first line is a bullet from the back of the bush took Medgar Evers' blood. You know, a finger fired the trigger to his name. But uh, the point I'm trying to make is that it's all in the alliteration of the lines. Mm. This is what an artist sounds like when you talk to them. I love talking to artists. I love being an artist. Number three. It's true, it's written about somebody. And it's, it's true, it's written about a real thing. But it's also done with a rhythm and, and uh, uh, a certain type of uh, uh, poetic nuance that I don't know how I derived that. I, I, I got all that into a particular song like that. Mm. Just love it. The great Bob Dylan trying to explain what it's like to be an artist. Phil Necro saying, I have no idea where that ball's going. They're the same, just like Jimmy Page. Coming up next, two things I want to talk about.
food, the greatest chocolate eclair, French eclair I've ever had, and the best ham sandwich you're ever going to have from the same bakery. And it's the same bakery that I talked about last week, the crunchiest baguette. They literally helicoptered these people out of Paris and dropped them here in Los Angeles. I'm going to tell you where that place is coming up next. And I also want to tell you about surfing this week. The waves have been massive. I went on Wednesday, and I got to tell you how I nearly lost my life. I'll explain coming up next on the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN. Weekend Warriors on Facebook. Didn't you get the memo? Quickly hear Clapper's crazy kitchen stories. Easily find different callers' aches and pain issues. Right, I get it. Search Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Who are you again? Voila! Like, follow, and enjoy the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. You're listening to the Weekend Warrior Show, presented by Cedar Sinai. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. Oh my God, that's amazing! Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Google the Guggenheim every Saturday morning from seven to nine a.m. on ESPN, seven ten, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. The number is 877-710-ESPN. All week long, people are coming to me saying, when will I know it's time to say yes to surgery? Here are the two tipping points I like to tell people. For your knee, your hip, your shoulder, whatever it is that ails you. Obviously, if it's a fracture or a dislocation, that's easy. You got to do it right away. But very few things need to be done right away. When is it the right time? And here's what I like to tell people. There's two tipping points. One, when it just gets to the point, for example, in your knee. Yeah, you're limping. Yeah, it's swollen. But when the destruction of the cartilage gets so bad that the two pieces, your femur and your tibia, that make up your knee joint, they're so arthritic that the pieces don't fit like they should anymore. The male-female fit, concave joint fitting into the convex joint, your knee starts to feel unstable. It buckles. It gives out on you. People literally feel like they're going to fall. Okay, it's time to fix your knee. Here's the second reason for you to come and say, I want to be like that woman in the video. If you go on the website, my website, you'll see a woman riding her bicycle in her neighborhood the day after her knee implant. It's amazing. I'll tell, it'll come to me. I want to be like that lady. Good. Walk in the pool first and then I'll do your surgery. But the second tipping point is when that bad knee or bad hip or bad ankle gets to the point that now your lower back starts to hurt because you're walking awkwardly. When you start messing up your lower back because of your ankle, your knee, your hip, trust me, you don't want to create lower back problems because we're not the greatest at fixing that then you better take care of your knee your hip or your ankle it's different in the upper extremity although i will say 
If your elbow or your shoulder is bothering you and now you got pain in your neck, same thing. You better let me fix your shoulder, your elbow, your wrist so that you don't get problems in your neck because it's not the home run that shoulder surgery is. So those are the two tipping points. Your knee is buckling, giving out on you, or now you're starting to get back pain, then it's time to fix your knee or your hip. Last week, I talked about the best baguette crunchy that I've ever had. Well, lo and behold, this bakery, they not only make pastries, the best French chocolate eclair I've ever had is at this bakery. My mouth is watering already. Oh my God. But they make the best sandwich. I, can't, I think I'm going to go there today after the show. Because the bread is the baguette. That's what the sandwich is on. And that, if, if that's not even enough, that is. But you and I, in America, in Los Angeles, if you're going to have a ham sandwich, you're going to put lots of ham in it. Well, they put one slice of ham. Literally, that's it. That's what they do in France. You just get one thin slice. But they don't use mustard or mayonnaise or anything else as an accoutrement. You know what they put on the crunchiest baguette you've ever had? They put French butter. As we say in New York, butter. There's butter on that baguette, a thin slice of ham, and sour dill vinegar tiny pickles, gherkin pickles, are inside the sandwich. You get the crunch of the crust, the crunch of the pickle, the absolute creamy taste of this butter that we don't have in America. And the ham is just a hint of the smokiness and the ham slice. I, I really don't eat this. I inhale it. That's how quickly I want to eat this sandwich. It's the greatest sandwich you will have in Los Angeles. And where is the place? Coming up next, towards the end of the show, I will reveal where that place is. And it's the same place I talked about last week, so I'm making up for it as well. I do want to talk to you about surfing. The waves, there's a swell, and another one is coming this weekend. But I had Wednesday off this week. So I drove up to Ventura. Went to my favorite donut shop, Good Time Donuts. Make sure you go say hi to Sue and tell her Dr. Clapper sent you. But this was before she even opened. I got up there, 4.30 in the morning. It's still pitch black dark. And I waited because you could just hear. As soon as I pulled my truck up, I couldn't see the waves, but you could hear this dynamite detonating as these waves were banging into the rocks. You can tell already, it's big. Waiting for the first light, not even sun up, first light to occur. And you get out of your truck and you walk and you see these explosions. But then the ocean has a lull when the sets take a break. And I waited as I walked down the staircase High tide, the water sloshing into the staircase, the rocks exploding. But there was a momentary lull, and I jumped on my board and I paddled as fast as I could because I know 
that it's a matter of a few minutes before the horizon will light up with three-story apartment buildings. And I better not be caught inside from those giant waves. So I paddle, 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 and I got way out. And then the set came in, but I was safe now. And once I got out there, there was my friend, Kevin, already in the water. And I must've had a big smile on my face because I could see it in his face as well, how happy we were to be out in the water before the big crowd would be coming. So we had the waves to ourselves for a few minutes. Except Kevin said one thing that bothered me and it reminded me of Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt used to say, every day, do something that scares you. <laughs> and I figured to myself, all right, Eleanor, I'm in the ocean today. I did something today that's scary to me, for sure. But then Kevin said something that really scared me. He said, Robbie, I'm glad we're out here, but I don't know how we're going to get in. Because when you turn your head and you look along the shoreline, all you can see was detonation and explosion of the waves into the shoreline and into the rocks. And he said, you remember whatever guy's name he told me? Yeah, he was out on Monday. He broke his hip. <laughs> going, oh, my God. Dr. Clapper. Oh, at least I can fix that, but I can't fix my own hip fracture. But that's all I was started to think about was great. I'm going to catch all these waves. But how am I going to get in? I was out for about an hour and a half and I only caught three waves. But on that last wave, I said, I got to figure out how to get in. And I timed it where the lull would be there again. And I'd let the water wash me all the way up the staircase. And I leaped with my board under my right arm onto the stair and ran out of the ocean. It was awesome. We'll see what happens tomorrow. I'll let you know next week. All right, coming up next, I'm going to tell some stories, some stories about controlling the chaos in life, in sports, in art, and in surgery. We all got to do it, particularly now in a pandemic. How do you control the chaos? I'll teach you a little bit. Coming up next on the Weekend Warriors Show here on 710 ESPN. Holy emoji, clap man. Weekend Warriors on Facebook. Holy slip disc. That's right, Robin. Hear listeners talk about their aches and pains. Holy hamstrings. Along with Doc's clapper vision. Breathe deeply. And advice to callers. On your toes, Robin. So like, follow, and enjoy. A wise decision. The Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Frankly, I can think of nothing more stimulating. 